This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, here we are uh, in the middle of a series. If you're visiting today, uh, we're in the middle of a, a short series. And, and basically, the series is based on this simple idea. Nobody enjoys Christmas better than a child. They know how to do it right. And virtually no one can suck the joy out of Christmas more than an adult. And that means many of us. I, I have been embarrassed at how many times I've said, um, when, when is Christmas over? <laughs> it's a terrible thing. Because, you see, we become so preoccupied with the things that don't matter, feel so urgent, while children have a tendency to focus on what really does matter, uh, simple as it is. And, of course, Jesus would agree that kids know how to do it best. He's the one in Mark 10 when uh, all those parents were bringing their children to him. He, and, and the disciples said, oh, 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 no, we're far too important. We've got too, we're too busy. We're too busy. How does that sound like? Oh, we're way too busy uh, to, to do it. And Jesus said, well, stop. Don't forbid them to come. In fact, he went on. He didn't just say, you guys are a bunch of grumpy curmudgeons. He said, you're missing the spiritual point which is no one enters the kingdom unless you come like a child. So maybe we should all be approaching this Christmas a little bit more like a child. And that's what we've been talking about. What does a a Bible story sound like when it's told by a child? What does theology look like when it's explained by a child? And so we've talked about some big theological concepts, right? Uh, the idea that, uh, that God is, is generous and, and, a, and a child says, well, God is for me. He's, he's, he's on my side. And the fact that he's omnipresent, but a child simply says, my God is with me everywhere I go. Today, um, theologians might talk about God's grace and mercy, but a child would simply say, my God forgives me. Kids understand forgiveness. Kids understand forgiveness. Part of the reason is because basically they really need relationships. They need you and me. And they know things go wrong. And so the only way to keep a relationship going when things go wrong is to be forgiven. Kids get it. It's we as adults who have trouble with forgiveness. If you're following along in your little bulletin uh, notes there, I want to turn your attention to what the Word of God says about forgiveness. They simply believe what the Bible says, which is found in 1 John 1.9. If you have a Bible, turn there, 1 John 1.9, or we'll project it up here. The Scripture says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Wow. If you're looking for a verse to memorize this week, because you already memorized last week's, this is a great one to memorize. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. But how can that really happen? I mean, seriously, God's perfect. We're obviously not perfect. We're far from perfect. What does it mean for God to forgive us? And, and that's all we're going to talk about today, simple as it is. What does it mean for God to forgive us? 
First thing I want you to write down is this. What does it mean that my God forgives me? It means that my God removes my sin completely. Removes my sin completely. Now, I think I have my prop here. I've got to go find it. In my trusty bag here. Oh, well, it fell out. So you're going to have to use your imagination. Um, look at what God says in Psalm 103, verse 12. He removes my sin completely. He, we read this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So when exactly does east turn to west? When do you stop traveling west and now it's become east again? It's hard to know. As far as those two can be imagined, that's how far God has removed my sin and your sin from us. It's pretty impressive. I mean, what he says is, it's gone. But that's not all he does. He doesn't just remove our sin, my sin, completely. It also says that God forgets my sin permanently. He forgets my sin Permanently. Look at Isaiah 43, uh, verse 25. This is kind of hard to get your head around, right? He says, I, even I, am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and he remembers your sins no more. It's hard to imagine God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, but he chooses to limit what he knows. He chooses to. To forget our sin. So, many of you would say, Mike, uh, this is kind of simple. Been coming to church now for a while. And uh, so I understand. We confess sins and we're forgiven and we just kind of scoot along. And yet, if you're honest, after you've confessed sin, the next time you end up by talking to God, as you approach him, you feel kind of guilty and there's kind of like this cloud hanging over your head. And you kind, of, you kind of slink into his presence with guilt and shame. And you're still apologizing, still rationalizing for the sin. You realize that when we do that, God says, Wait, 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 wait. wait. I'm, I'm sorry, I, what are you talking about? Well, you know, I mean, all that stuff. What stuff? I don't have a clue. I mean, I don't want to be rude, Mike. I'm God and all, but... I don't have a clue what you're talking about. He chooses to forget. But that's not the way we think. Now, my prop, um, back when I was in college, um, we used to have to write papers. And uh, many, of you, many of you are not going to have, you're going to have, you can have trouble with this, getting your mind around this. But we didn't have computers. <laughs> In fact, even as I say it, I start to feel like I'm a thousand years old. The only computers, when I was in college, the only computers were in some secret government bunker somewhere. And they took up a space of this building, you know? So when we had to write papers, we used a mechanical device. It was all pins and wheels and things, and you pressed a, a key down, and it would create physical pressure on a little bar, which would spin a cam, which would flip an arm up, and on that arm was a letter. 
to many of you, this sounds like Gutenberg press-ish, okay? It's like, snap, snap, snap. And that's exactly how I typed. Snap, snap, right? It was called a typewriter. They have them in museums if you want to go see one. <laughs> so if you were like me and you're t writing a paper, uh, I didn't really actually do that a lot. My girlfriend did that for me. Uh, but anyway, so you type and type. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, anyway, and, uh, but you would type, and then inevitably you'd make a mistake. Ah! And so my prop, of course, today was this little miracle bottle. <laughs> Everybody knows what it is, right? Say it together. Yes. White out. And so you're like, huh. So, you know, like now back in those days, we kept like a, like a jug of it. There were not a little, like now you only need this, but I need a jug. And what you do is you take this white stuff and you paint over where the letter was. And then you'd wait and blow. Because if, if, you, if you retyped over it too soon, all that white stuff stuck to the letter. And then for the rest of the paper, that letter was missing. I, some of you, we live this. I understand that. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, you, you drive, and then you paint, and then you're like, please God, snap. And if you're lucky, the white stayed on the paper, and the new letter went over where the mistake was. And then you got to keep writing your paper. Now, let me ask you a question. When you make a mistake on a paper like that and you use whiteout, is the mistake, the original mistake, actually still there? Yeah. It is. It's simply covered over. Isn't that how we think about forgiveness? We think God is gracious. We think, oh, boy, you're so good to me to white out my sin. Thank you, God. But we seem to think that, I mean, everyone with any sense, I mean, I'm a, I was a professor too, you read papers. Now, it didn't have any white out. But when you're handing a paper in, when you held the paper up, blop, 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 I mean, that white out was, is opaque. The, the light would go through the page, but not through the white out. You could see those mistakes. You still knew that anybody who was looking would know that those mistakes. You see, we tend to think that God doesn't really forgive. The word is more like, I don't know, camouflaged. That's what, that's what we do. We just camouflage our sin. And we think God's forgiveness is like that. Have you ever watched kids fight and then reconcile? Okay. It's fun to watch, watch them fight. I tend to just let them fight it out. But, but, you know, they'll fight whatever, and then what do you do? You say, hey, 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 stop, stop. You put, come over here, come over here. What's going on here? Okay, so tell him you're sorry. Tell her you're sorry. And what do they say? Sorry. sorry. <laughs> right? Sorry. Okay. Now, don't do that again. It doesn't sound very sincere, and yet usually what happens is then they run off and they play the rest of the day. Like nothing ever happened. It's almost as though kids actually believe when you say, I'm sorry, forgive me, okay, you're forgiven. They actually believe it. How naive. <laughs> Actually, it's that trait that makes children so vulnerable. You see, they have a tendency to believe what they're told until they're taught that the person talking to them can't be trusted. 
And so as long as they believe what they're told, they're vulnerable. I wonder sometimes if that's why we have such trouble with forgiveness. Because we are unwilling to be that vulnerable. We're not going to take a chance. I know you said it was okay, but, you know, I'm not really quite sure. Many of you would know the terms law and grace. In times past, God, his relationship to people was based on his law. Rules, not just the Ten Commandments, 600 or plus rules and regulations and guidelines that he laid down for people to live. We need to understand that he never thought that if you met those laws that somehow you would be saved. They were never intended for that. The New Testament makes that clear. But he gave all those laws so that, number one, we would begin to understand what holiness really looks like. And number two, that we would understand that we need to be saved. We could never do it on our own. So while people were living under law, they were trying their best to do what God had directed, and yet they were constantly failing and being forced to come back to him. Today, we don't live under law. We live under Grace, yes. If you've been around church at all, you've heard that term, grace, grace. We sing about it. We, we talk about it. In fact, we even define grace with an acrostic. It looks something like this. Grace really means God's riches or righteousness at Christ's expense. What we mean is that Christ paid the penalty so that we could enjoy the benefit. That's grace. We don't live under law now. We live under grace. Listen to Romans 6, starting in verse 14. It says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Yay. Forgiveness and grace are two sides of the same coin. Forgiveness is based on God's grace. And all of us who have, at least all of us who have been around church for a while, we would say, oh, we believe in grace. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, if we look closely, I think we would discover that even though we say we live under grace, we actually live under a bunch of laws that we have set up for ourselves. We make up these little laws, and we live by those rules. It kind of goes like this. And and if I step on any toes, good. Um, (laughs) Because this has trashed me this week. So we say, hi, God. How you doing? Hey, it's it's Mike again. Yeah. And so I messed up. You know, I can't even keep count. I just, you know, so. But uh, thank you for forgiving me. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, I've been thinking, you know, To be honest, with everything I did this week, I mean, expecting you to forgive every bit of it, especially the stuff that I was sort of planning to do, like that, that's, that's a bit much. I mean, even for you. So, um, because there's nothing's free. There's no free lunch. We all know that. So, so what I thought I would do is, um, even though I know you forgive me, but you know what, just to help out, I'm thinking I'm going to have 15 minutes of devotions every day for the rest of my life. Okay, so I'm thinking if I do that, that might take the edge off, kind of, you know, help out, because I'm, I'm sure that would make you happy. So, okay, so 15 minutes every day. And, 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 of course, we're aware of the fact that if we fail that, which we do, then we expect that God go, is, is 
displeased with that performance. He's, he's like, way to go. Thanks so much, right? He's not going to be thrilled with me, and things aren't going to go well, and he's not going to answer my prayers, and I'm not going to win the lottery. <laughs> and of course, if we're Christians, we say, but of course I deserve it. We know, oh, we're good on that. I mean, I deserve it. You know, of course, I know. God, I feel really, really bad about all my mistakes. I'm going to give an extra 25 bucks every week. Okay? It's the least I could do. That should help. Do you hear how subtle law is? Do you see, do you hear how easily grace slips away? Basically, what we're saying is, hey, God, I'm just wondering if you would mind co-signing my debt, my sin debt. I'm, I'm going to cover it, but just in case, you know, if there's stuff I can't cover, if you would co-sign. God's not in the business of co-signing our sin debt. This was my dad's problem. When I first got saved and I went home and told him about Jesus dying and giving salvation to anyone who would believe, the very first words out of his mouth, he laughed and, and, and with some expletives and said, you have got to be kidding. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There's no way God would do that. If God did that, people would do that, have salvation and live like hell, he said. There's no way he would let that happen. We need to learn something today. Forgiveness is not an educational tool that God uses to leverage in teaching us about our sin. Forgiveness is not something that he gives and takes and gives and gives and takes and takes and takes and gives and goes, okay? You know, it's like to train a puppy, you reward good behavior, you ignore bad behavior, and we think that's what God's doing with forgiveness. What we don't understand about forgiveness is it comes as one chunk It's not metered out. So what does it mean to live under grace? I want you to write this down. Living every day. Living under grace means living every day with a growing awareness of what I have been given in light of what I deserve. Living every day with a growing awareness of what I have been given in light of what I deserve. You're thinking, really, Mike? I mean, that's neat and all. Actually, some of you are thinking this right now. You're thinking to yourself, that's good, but I already know that. Already know that. In fact, that's part of what's bothering me right now is because I know that and it really doesn't make any difference in my life. My life doesn't feel freer. It doesn't feel better. I don't, it's just, it's just kind of like, I, it feels like it doesn't have any impact. I'd like to suggest that there's not something wrong with God's forgiveness. I'm going to suggest that you might know it. You might know exactly what we're talking about. You know it, but you don't actually believe it. 
you can always tell when we believe it. Always tell. It shows. Let me prove it to you. Open your Bibles to Luke 7. Toward the end of Luke 7 is the story of a sinful woman who comes to anoint Jesus' feet. Now, for those of you that are kind of, you know, you've begun studying God's Word, good for you, by the way, you need to understand that this story seems to show up in all four Gospels. The story is in all four Gospels. But what I want you to know is the story that's represented in Matthew, Mark, and John, they are all referring to the same incident, the same event. The circumstances are the same. This account in Luke, though it's similar, is a different account. It's a different experience. It, it ha- it's a whole different exchange experience. And we know that for lots of reasons. The setting is different. But so, so Luke has recorded this for us, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now this passage says that she had lived a sinful life. Perhaps you've been trained that she was a prostitute. And to be honest, that very well could be true. Although people were called sinful by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they had a tendency to call everyone who didn't do everything they did sinful. You and I would be in the sinful category to them. That being said, it's very possible, maybe even likely, that she had been supporting herself as a prostitute. I want to remind you that in that culture, in those days, a woman who did not have a husband or family that would support and protect her had virtually no opportunities to even feed herself. There are places in the world still just like that. It says that she had an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, alabaster is kind of a whitish-yellow stone, uh, relatively easily carved or shaped often holding stuff that was kind of valuable. Now, in the other accounts, different account, but in those accounts, it describes this perfume as being worth a year's wage. And there's no reason to believe that maybe that's not also true in this setting. So I I looked it up. Last year, the average income for Montgomery County was $45,000 a year. Surprisingly, uh, it's 40,000. 40, Bucks County was 35. Go figure. What do you have that's worth 45 grand? 40 grand? Not much. Most of our most expensive toys don't quite hit that. If you have something in your family that's worth $40,000, it's kept in a special place. You don't put it in the car top carrier going down the highway. So this this perfume was 
probably very valuable. In fact, it says often they would wear it around their neck, keeping it close. Now, I don't know about you, but there's only a few things that I always keep on my person. Maybe you have a few things like that. I always have this or that with me. It kind of travels with me. It's a part of me. You start to identify yourself with it. It's on my person. That's how we say it. This jar of perfume would have been probably something that was always on her person, right here where she could keep track of it. And if she was a prostitute, it very well may have been that this perfume was also a tool of her trade. In a world full of animals and dust, opening something that powerful, just a whiff, might work like a, like a billboard, better than email marketing. Whoa, what is that? And everybody would know. Somebody was nearby. Well, we're not sure. But we know that it was probably valuable, held on her person, might have even been something she used as part of what she did. Verse 38, And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now we need to understand something. She was taking a pretty big risk. She was not invited to this Pharisee's home. She probably planned to slip in and slip out with the other banquet servers. You ever been to a banquet? It's time for this course, time for that course. These people know white tops, black bottoms, in and out. And if I, believe me, we've worked in the back. We know what that looks like. Plating them up, plating them up, getting them out, getting them out, getting them back. And in that rush, she had hoped to sort of, she was waiting around for him to arrive. He arrives. She wanted to just slip in, show honor, and slip out. She probably fully expected that Jesus' feet would have already been washed because that was customary for guests. So I want you to imagine the shock on her face when she slipped in behind Jesus. And if you, if you don't understand, they were probably reclining at a low table. So basically, you kind of sit like this next to a low table and you eat like this. With me, and and the re, part of the reason they did that, part of it was perhaps some background with tents and lower buildings or lower living quarters. But also, in that culture, you wanted to keep your feet as far from the table as possible. You tell your kids that, right? Feet off the table! And I'm going to suggest that our feet today are relatively clean compared to what those feet were. You keep them way down there. So that's the point. They're all here. Feet are out there. Pretty much everyone's even ignoring that they're there. She slips in. And all of a sudden she looks at these feet and realizes they haven't even been washed. And then something happens to this woman. Something bubbles up from deep inside. Is it because she's this close to him? She'd obviously heard about him. What had she heard? Had she heard that when you go to Jesus and ask forgiveness, you receive it? Who knows? Maybe Jesus healed somebody that was special to her. Maybe she thought he was from God. She, there she is at his feet, and then she looks, and his feet are still filthy, and they're shock, and she's disappointed, and, and tears spontaneously begin to fall. 
she did not plan to do this. If she had, she would have brought in water. She would have brought a, a towel. She would have brought a basin. She obviously expected his feet to be clean, and they were filthy. And something about that, cradling these filthy feet, caused her to begin to weep. And then she probably noticed that as the tears fell on Jesus' feet, they began to carry away the dirt. And the idea, the, the idea occurred to her, oh my goodness, this works. And as she cries, she begins wiping off with her hair, of all things. It's the only thing that she's got to, to actually, and again, in this culture where um, you know, women, even now in that part of the world, are often covered from head to toe. And so she's not going to whip out her skirt and wipe things off. It'd be totally inappropriate. But, but she can get her hair down and, and wipe. Which, by the way, if you know anything about, we're going to continue our study of 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that a woman's hair is a glory to her. We'll talk about that later. But you need to understand that this woman was taking what her culture said was the most glorious part of her body. And she was wiping and cleaning the most ignoble portion of Jesus' body. And so here she is crying and wiping. It says that he, she kissed his feet. She dare not kiss his face. She couldn't even get close to him. But here they were. And it says that she didn't just like kiss it once and out she went. She, she kind of poured the perfume on and she kept kissing, cradling. She took her time. She didn't want this to be over quick. Verse 39. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so he's still trying to figure out if Jesus is even a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. You hear the judgment passed. What kind of a man? He can't even be a prophet. He's having these kind of judgmental thoughts about what's going on. And in the midst of that, Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. Jesus answered in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus tells a story. Two people owed money to a certain lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them would love him more? You got it? You owe 50 bucks, you owe 50,000 bucks. Both debts are forgiven. Which would love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Then Jesus turned to the woman. And he said to Simon, you see the drama? He's looking at her, but he's still talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. I realize that your guests would probably not receive that quite the same way. Hey, how are you? Look, 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 look. Okay, just a little bizarre. 
You understand the culture? You didn't put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you. And listen to this, this judgment. Her many sins have been forgiven. If you want your sins forgiven, all you have to do is wipe Jesus' feet with your tears and your hair and pour perfume on him and, and kiss him, right? Is that how she had her sins forgiven? Now, Jesus is saying, this woman has already been forgiven as her great love has shown. You can tell when a person believes in grace. You can tell. And you can tell when a person, no matter how much they protest and say they know it, you can tell when they don't believe it. I'm sorry. There have been many times in my life where I knew it to be true. Pretty much you can't unknow something, but that doesn't mean I have always believed it with the same veracity. But it always shows. What difference does living under God's grace really make? Write these things down. Grace changes your affections. Did grace change this woman's values? It's pretty obvious. Something that was so valuable to her, worth perhaps a year's wage, that she kept tied to her own person, and now she's willing to sacrifice it on Jesus' feet. Do we know her values changed? Yes. Oh, you can't deny it. You don't fake something like that. By the way, sometimes that's why God calls you and I to sacrifice something that's big. Because if it's small, we can rationalize it and say, eh, it's no big deal, I can always get another one. Sometimes, there have been times when somebody will give me a little gift and somebody goes, oh, those are great. And I go, here. <gasps> no big deal. I'm not generous. I'm going to go buy another one. But when you do that with something that everyone knows, you will never get another one. That was one of a kind. That's when jaws drop. That's when, that's when no one can argue whether or not you have experienced grace. How could you give away a year's wage? Compared to what I've been given, it was nothing. I want you to imagine saying that when it really wasn't true. I can't believe you gave away a year's wage compared to what I've been given. That was, well, nothing, <laughs> right? We just panicked. She didn't go there requesting anything. She didn't receive anything. She was responding to what she had already received. You know, we tend to value so many things, and none of them are bad. I think my wife deserves a new Escalade. Amen. 
And I printed the biggest picture of it I could get for her. <laughs> we value so many things. None of them are necessarily bad. But how many of the things that you value are completely untouched by God's grace? It's never been sanctified by His grace. Never been given the value that they deserve, which is, in comparison, zilch, nada, zero, nothing. Grace changes your heart's affection. Secondly, grace changes your life's direction. There is no way that you experience God's grace without the entire force of your life being changed. Now, some of you, you trusted Christ as your Savior, but hey, still same profession, still the same hobbies, still pretty much my whole life's the same. Is that okay? I don't know. It depends on what's going on on the inside. But if you know that if you had to give up many of those things for Christ, if you know that would be a struggle, then you need to go get some time away and ask Jesus to show you what grace really means. I am not asking you to do something hard. Get this. This is not hard. It's either impossible or it's automatic. It's impossible or it's automatic. All you have to do, you don't have to say, God, please help me be willing to give it away. Forget that. Just say, God, help me to live in your grace. And suddenly, nothing else will matter. She gave up a year's wage. She gave up perhaps the tools of her trade. Maybe she, ca- she gave up something that had always been on her person and all of that meant nothing just to wipe Jesus' feet. Seeing life through the lens of grace. Seeing Christmas through the lens of grace because Christmas is the story of grace. It changes how we see everything. How do you see? What do you see when you look at life? So here's the shocking truth. God knows every hidden sin in your life. Every single thing that you and I want to hide from everyone else, even ourselves, he knows every one of them. And he loves you. I didn't say he still loves you, as though somehow all of that sin makes it more difficult for him to love you. They're two separate truths. He knows every sin, and he loves you. Is that really possible? Could he be so gracious as to simply forgive? You don't understand, Mike. See, God expects better from me. He does not. He wants better for you. What he expects from us is to be honest with what is true. So many people listen to the story of Christmas and they wish it were true. What a nice story. If only a baby born in a manger could bring hope to the world. But they don't feel hopeful. They don't feel forgiven. Do you know why? Because they have never confessed their sin and asked for forgiveness. 
If you are here and you don't feel forgiven, I just have to ask you, have you actually confessed your sin and asked him to forgive you? That's the fix today. Jesus, I've sinned and I need you to save me. Jesus, I know you saved me, but I've sinned and I need you to forgive me. Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. There's only one vehicle that carries all that. It is the grace of God. Let's pray. What makes Christmas Christmas is not that a baby was born in a manger, but that that baby was born so that he could take on the sins of the world. And having taken the sin of the world, that he could offer eternal life as a gift. And he offers it to you today. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? If not, today's the day. Receive the gift, open the package, unwrap it, and make it yours. But many of you are Christians. And now's when the hard thing comes. You say, boy, Mike, this is so good. Rally us all up. Rah, rah, rah. Wish it were true. Oh, I'm so sorry. That grace would be so close. But that your fear of being honest about what has happened, what happens in your life, your fear of confessing would stop you from experiencing the limitless grace of God. He already knows. He loves you. Jesus, I sin. I keep sinning. I probably plan to sin. Please forgive me. I want to promise something different, but you and I both know I just need forgiveness. That's the gift that Jesus gave. Lord Jesus, would you through your spirit today Help us to experience your grace in a way that you intended all along. It is outrageous grace. Free us from the tyranny of sin. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.